Meanwhile, recorded live in the Lava Lamp Lounge, it's somewhere in between a radio zine. News, music, culture, stories, and more. This show is what we make of it, and hopefully you'll join us in the fun, too. Now let's get started. And welcome to a very rare opportunity. It's issue 40, Writing and Producing the Future, Part 1. I've probably mentioned it before on this very program that my favorite show when I was a child was Max Headroom, the short-lived science fiction program from the late 80s that, well, was something I have thought about endlessly ever since. And, you know, every once in a while I would think to myself, you know, it would be really cool if I could talk to the creators behind this show and get a little bit of a idea of what it was like to make it. So I did. Well, uh, uh, should we get started? Is everybody? Good? Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, uh, yeah we're here. Well, th- yeah. thank you so much you, you for called this meeting. Get on with it. Yes. Get on with it. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, because uh, we have three people here uh, who are uh, basically uh, the American creative team for uh, Max Edrum. We have producer Brian Frankish and writers uh, Steve Roberts and Michael Cassett uh, with us. Thank you uh, so much for your time. When was the last time the three of you uh, got together to talk about Max like this? I think it was probably the day they canceled the show, wasn't it? That's the voice of Steve Roberts. I think, yeah, I think so. Uh, probably the last time we're actually together, yes. And that is Michael Cassett. Although, when they had the Museum of Television event, which I remember as being about year 2000, I think we were all there. Although I don't recall that we sat around and chatted because it was just a little bit scattered. If Michael is referring to the Museum of Television and Radio seminar that was moderated by Stephen A. Bell, then the event took place on November 3, 1999. The panel included Matt Frewer, Amanda Pays, William Morgan Shepard, along with Steve Roberts, Rocky Morton and Peter Wagg. The Paley Center for Media has it in their catalog, and the event ran roughly 83 minutes. That was, so, yeah. the, was that the on-stage thing? Yes. Where, where, where Rocky Morton turned up and claimed to have created everything that Max ever did. Yeah. Wouldn't that be awkward? Yeah, yes. That, that would. And, and that would I, I remember that. Yeah. It's probably the only time that I uh, actually wished I was carrying a sidearm. Something small and tasty. And, and I was in the audience. And this is the voice of Brian Frankish. Because they, 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 deemed, they deemed that I wasn't uh, creative enough to be to share the stage with the rest of you geniuses. Whoa, so, that's right. And so I, you, I, yes, we voted on that, Brian. I I will note that I was in the audience too. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so it was a but very I, strange. But I do, but I do remember that people kept fielding questions to me in the audience. <laughs> they did. Well, they yeah. knew what you knew. <laughs> yeah. People don't know shit, you see. We just make stuff up. Brian actually knows how to do this. Mm. We just invent it as we go along, but he, he's the man you ask if you want to know how to pull it off. Watch and learn. And then you go back and redo it so you can actually do it. Again and again and again and again and again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But but you know, it was uh 
an interesting proposition when everybody showed up in the same room for the first time. And then getting to that same room for the first time was uh, was uh, an interview process. Would you mind just standing up again for one moment? Take a seat. Sorry? Take a seat. I remember uh, I interviewed with uh, Peter Wagg and Phil DeGare. Both Peter Wagg and Philip DeGare were the executive producers on Max Headroom. Peter primarily produced music videos before he got involved with the original UK teleplay and produced through to the end of the US series. Afterwards, Peter Wagg produced a series of Cirque du Soleil movies and videos. Meanwhile, Philip DeGare began working in television in 1968 and worked on a large number of shows, including Beretta, Simon and Simon and Jag. Philip and Michael both worked on the 1980s version of The Twilight Zone just before they moved over to Max Headroom. And it was, uh, I believe it was uh, December or, or November or something like that of 87 or something like that. 86. Oh, no, 86. And I was get, getting ready to, to uh, catch a plane a couple of days because I was on my way to Rome to do a, uh, to, to be the studio for Burt Reynolds. Can't you just once do what I say without arguing? No. Liza Minnelli. What are you looking at? Nothing. Rent a cop. Sometimes you have to go through a hell of a lot to find out what you're really good at. And uh, they were shooting at Cinecita. Brian is referring to the legendary Italian Institute, Cinecita Studios, originally founded in 1937. During the making of Rent a Cop, Cinecita Studios was celebrating its 50th anniversary, and Italian President Francesco Cossiga visited the set up the movie, following the opening ceremony for the 50th anniversary party. And in those days, we had phones on the back of the, of the seat in front of us mm. that would yeah. ring and we could answer them. And, and somewhere uh, east of Chicago, this phone rang and I picked it up and it was Edward O. Denault, you know, the Eddie Denault. Sure, Lorimar. Edward O. Denault was the executive production supervisor on Max and was not only the head of Lorimar, but Edward's career went back all the way to 1957. Denault worked on countless shows, including Mike Hammer, The Rifleman and the original Twilight Zone. One can deduce that Brian and Edward worked on The Last Starfighter together, which probably led to Brian being considered for Max Headroom. He was saying, uh, Hey, Ryan, uh, uh, well, that interview didn't go very well for you, so uh, uh, you can, you're free to go and, and uh, figure out what you want to do. These, these guys haven't, uh, haven't picked up the phone and said, we want Frankish, so have a good time in Rome. I said, I said thanks, Eddie, hung up the phone. Oh, you're off the hook. And I was in Rome, and about said, about four or five days later, at, at, uh, at uh, what was it, about three three o'clock in the morning, the phone in the hotel room room rang, and it was Wag going, Frankish, you know, don't believe what Eddie Denault said. When can you get out here? You know? <laughs> but I don't want to sound desperate. <laughs> uh. And so, and so, in a couple of weeks, I was back in. You know, staring at, well, I, I was sitting there with Wag in his office, and in another room, there was this bearded gentleman uh, by the name of Roberts who was pounding away at, at, uh, at, a, at a word processor. 
this is the future. And things have just started to begin. At that time, it was uh, I understood that uh, we were trying to get on the air, and this was like Jan in January, I think. And everybody turned around and says, we've got to be on the air by March 27th. Huh? And I went, right. You're shitting. <laughs> Announcer Mitch here. While the story is 100% true, we should point out that they had a little longer than Brian suggests. Four days longer, to be precise. From a standing start with six episodes. Right. Well, but you, right. no, no, two episodes. Oh, it's just two. That's all you had. You had, uh, you had the pilot and, and, uh, no, you had three pilot rakers and, uh, body bank. Body bank. This was it. Yeah. War? So. Oh, Matt, no, I tell you, it's probably war. Because oh, what's a war? Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were, we were writing six episodes at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were writing six, six episodes, but, but you had episodes one, two, and three, except when we started, they were, they were one, three, and two, yeah. uh, like that, because you, you change, you know, uh, episode two and three around. What is this madness? If you remember, yes. after, after we had shot them. And, yeah. And, and really fucked up the continuity and all that shit party shot. It doesn't have to make sense. It's entertainment. Well, yes. Uh, security <laughs> Systems was originally supposed to be six, and War was supposed to be four. Then yeah. War wound up being six. Security Systems moved up. Rakers and uh, Money Bags shifted. Um, the Blanks was the other one. Yeah. I think stayed yeah. right where it was. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. So. We, we had we, we had nothing, you know. Uh, within a week, we'd hired a production designer and started throwing some shit together. And I, and I walked up to Andy Denault's office and I said, look, uh, I'm going to need three stages now. And, and I, I'm going to need two construction crews. <laughs> I mean, I've got to yeah. work a, a, a straight time in a, in a, in a, in a graveyard, uh, uh, just in, just, you know, around the clock, just to get this, this thing built and to go in time. I've, I've got to get shooting now. <laughs> and you know, if I'm going to make the 27th, it was really bitch. Yeah. And, and uh, it was unprecedented, as a matter of fact. And at the same time in this in this prep, I found myself throwing uh, Roberts and Wag into the car and giving them a tour of Los Angeles. Because in which I have never recovered, I might. <laughs> I was just going to ask. They turned to me and they said. Having, having just come from the Becton Gas Works. Located to the south of the Northern Outfall Sewer, roughly between Woolwich Manor Way and the Thames, the Gas Works opened in 1870 as a new business by the Gas Light and Coke Company, and was named after the company's governor, Simon Beck. Becton remained in operation until 1976, at which point it was closed down, and became a location for a number of film productions, including For Your Eyes Only, Full Metal Jacket, and the Pet Shop Boys movie It Couldn't Happen Here, crucially. Both the Max Headroom telefilm and the film adaptation of 1984 shared this location. Uh, they, they said, where's the architecture? Where did it go? What, what, what is this Los Angeles anyway? <laughs> isn't, there, isn't there any architecture here? I say, I'm terribly sorry, but there were, the, the, the tutors didn't, weren't raised here. <laughs> Zing. And, you know, I ended up driving, you know, driving them down into the L.A. River and bent uh, through uh, uh, East Los Angeles and, and uh, I mean, through, through every old building and, and anything that I could find. And, and believe me, we, we used them all. Every... 
one. <laughs> um, the Deco, uh, the the Deco buildings in downtown Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, you know, but we had to piecemeal the whole show because uh, there were no there were no long streets of of ancient architecture in Los Angeles. <laughs> after all, you know, most of it's built after World War Two. You know, I forget how young you are. Not, not that it actually took part in World War Two. You understand? Well, you know. We were, we were fortunate we uh, we didn't have the blitz get this far. You know, we saved your ass in World War Two. Yeah, well, we saved your ass in World War Three. That's true. Mm. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it, and, it is uh, interesting that you guys can maintain that kind of um, cohesion with the sets, because as we were talking, you know, the, the, every time we're looking at a new location, we're like, oh, yeah, this Art Deco design here is pretty consistent. And, like, I can't imagine that was at all easy. <laughs> Well, you know, it wasn't. As a matter of fact, it, just to find Theora's bedroom was uh, was a, 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 down in Long Beach. As a matter of fact, it was a, a huge hotel uh, lobby of a building that had been built in in the uh, in the twenties before the dark times. That was all cement, and it was being torn down. As a matter of fact, it was, it was about to be torn down. Wow, bummer! But we got in there in time to actually create the create the bedroom. And, and shoot it. We also, in that same building, found the Rakers swimming pool. Yeah, we have a pool, but you know, it hasn't been filled in within two years. Um, do you mind if we check it out? No, you guys can do anything you want to do in there if you want. Uh, we'll figure out something. Okay, thank you. Oh. Interesting. I love that. <laughs> at the same time, we were searching how are we going to do Rakers and found this, this the first the first guy who was really a, was, was a building and, and operating motorized skateboards mm, yes. with, with, with little wicks, uh, little kind of long extended little things you could turn that controlled the, mm. the, uh, the carburetors on these little engines. Nothing can possibly go wrong. I remember, uh, as a matter of fact, also uh, in that situation, we, uh, we changed cinematographers. We started out with one cinematographer through the pilot and it was a little too vanilla. Broad now. Not very Ridley. Mm. Well, uh, but th then uh, you guys all got together and said, gee, wouldn't it be, be neat if we had a little more cutting edge of a cinematographer? And we hired Paul, I can't remember his name. Announcer Mitch here. We believe that Brian is referring to Paul Goldsmith who worked on such films as The Lost Boys, Flight Plan, starring Jodie Foster, and Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Paul's career goes back to 1967, and was the cinematographer for both Max Headroom and TV 101, another show that Michael Cassett wrote for. And we, I remember walking into the, to the Rakers swimming pool with him, and he was saying, just get me some three-foot stick-up fluorescence, okay? You know, battery powered, whatever, you know, just stick one here and stick one there and stick one there. And I went, oh, okay, this is different. You know, we're not bringing a 5K in at the end of the thing and putting nine, nine pounds of gel on the front of the damn thing. Just boom, 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 boom. Bang, shoot. It was, it was refreshing in a lot of ways. Production on TV these days is so different than it was in the 80s. And I'm kind of wondering, like, what a typical work day for all three of you was like. Did you guys work closely together or were you mostly kind of separated and then would 
touch base oh, occasionally? Or? Well, I, I was always running in front of people, preparing sets that were going on in, 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 in the future. And, and those two gentlemen were, were uh, chained to desks. That's nice, in a disturbing sort of way. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in the production office, which I think was, uh, uh, well, it was, you see that sign right there? Brian then points to a yellow and black striped sign in his office with the words Max Headroom printed on it. Check our show notes for a still image of this moment. Mm-hmm. That, that was hanging over the, the the front production office, right? And and, uh, and but they were writing like mad, and I was I was getting these pages and working with the art department, and 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 the directors that were coming up, and and also Mr. Wag, uh, about you know getting sets after we've broken down the sets that we needed and, and, and the order of shots that we were going to shoot them. Sounds like a lot of work. And, and also trying to work out what he wanted to do to to, uh, to put a, a little bit extra into it. And so they devised going to uh, San Francisco to the shipyard in San Francisco for a two-day exterior mm. uh, to cover four shows. And, and that was interesting. That's one way of putting it. The answer to, to the question is we, everyone was was separate. Mm. Uh, Mike, Mike and I were sla- slaving away. I, actually, I think I was still using a typewriter at the time. I hadn't worked yes. out about computers. Hashtag blank life. I think Michael was very advanced. He was on a word processor of some sort, weren't you, Michael? Yes, when basic. Yeah, uh, and, well, and that was scriptor. it. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. Scriptor. Oh, is that what it was? Well, anyway, wherever it was, we were stuck there, um, drinking whiskey and smoking cigarettes. And watching Captain Kangaroo, now don't tell me I've nothing to do. Uh, actually, that bit of the writer's task isn't true, but we were stuck. <laughs> and Brian was, was having all the fun. He was running around uh, trying to prevent catastrophe all over... California. I don't use the word hero very often, but you are the greatest hero in American history. Kept, kept trying to realize what people were screaming at me. Well, let's do this. Uh, okay, <laughs> yeah. you know. How hard could that be? I felt I was fairly divorced from production, um, and having come on off Twilight Zone, where I was working for Phil DeGare, I've been. When you are a writer on that, even though I was a junior writer, literally a staff writer. I was on the set every time something I was uh, writing was being produced, but I, I rarely got to the set. Rarely, I got to production meetings on a couple of scripts I was doing. But yes, my my job, as I recall, was sitting there trying to you know turn various people's drafts, like Rakers. I did a lot of rewriting on. War. Steve and I did a tremendous amount of rewriting on to just make them max. Uh, middle of a global rating sweep and, and Network 23 is satelliting dogs. <laughs> Benny, Benny, are you, are you ever gonna learn? Hello to you too, Frank. Of course, it's not necessary for me to remind you that I was hyping globals at the ad market when you were failing potty training. I mean, in, just in the early going, and that's all I would be doing from you know 10 to seven every day is uh, sitting in an office near, somewhere near Steve and Peter and I knew Frankish, but I, I don't think we had many conversations. I would see him in a in a in a crowd because he was always in motion. He basically was like one of those you know time lapse pictures or something. Everybody else would have been standing still and he would have been going. Right, it's like a new descending staircase painting in action, but it's Brian Frankish making Max Headroom. 
Yeah, well, I mean, everybody was trying to catch up with 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 an impossibility. I mean, yeah, Brian, how, how Brian ever pulled this off, nobody, frankly, ever knows. I mean, there were there were miracles at work somewhere. I love deals, but our, our problem was uh, similar uh, in terms of we had to deliver stuff. And the truth was, I think I mentioned when we talked before that Michael was the only guy who could do Max. I mean, it's a very curious thing to say, but it's very difficult stuff to write unless you're slightly insane or Swiss. It's a hell of a combination. <laughs> and fortunately, Michael's both, so you know, he was able to pull this off. But it was we were getting stuff in, which are the best in the world, apart from the one by George R. R. Martin, who you might have heard mm -hmm. of. The name rings a bell. Apart from his, everybody else had to be completely rewritten. Mm -hmm. And this was perfectly normal. I mean, this is unusual in television anyway, yeah. but... It was it was desperate for us because we need to get the pages to 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 um, Brian and couldn't get them there. So mm. we didn't have time to leave the room, basically. I can't. I'm kind of busy. That's one of the reasons just since we mentioned the obscure Mr. Martin. No, none of them have ever heard of him. One of the reasons the kind of order of scripts changed is because George mm. had written an outline mm. that was supposed to be in the sequence or a show called Mr. Meat. Yeah, well, what's your real name? That uh, somewhere in the studio and certainly at, at ABC uh, caused great consternation <laughs> and, and wound up being put on the shelf. So not only did we have a hole in the schedule, a new script had to be written by Steve to fit the initial uh, six episodes. And mm. so at the same time, you're trying to shape all the other episodes into producible, preferable scripts, which we almost never did. Um, on some kind of schedule, you had to write it. Steve had to write a new one, which you know it's the kind of thing that takes a bit of time. So uh, mm -hmm. that was what was going on for our side. You just heard part one of our conversation with Brian Frankish, Steve Roberts, and Michael Cassett, three of the creative team members who produced Max Headroom in the late 80s. There's more of this conversation coming your way next week, so please stay tuned. And why not visit the show notes on this particular episode, betweenradiozine.com, and you'll find a link to a video of this conversation that you can watch and enjoy. Thank you. That's going to do it for us this week here on the program. Somewhere in between, a radio zine. Writing and producing the future. Part 1. Issue 40. Contained, Writing and Producing the Future. Part 1. Written by Heather Zykowski and Austin Rich. 
and featuring a conversation with Brian Frankish, Steve Roberts, and Michael Cassett. Every once in a while, you really do get to live out one of your dreams. But sometimes that dream is conducted over Zoom. 30 years later, when your back hurts and all of you are sort of trying to remember what it was all about way back when. This episode was produced by Austin Rich in the Lava Lamp Lounge and was assembled using only the finest in 20th century technology. In the long-standing tradition of most zines, there is an open submission policy here. If you have a story, some music or poetry that you'd like to send in or read, or you just want to be a part of the show, why not drop a line to austinrich at gmail.com? That's going to do it for us this week. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you. Song.